The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. He goes to the Borg and he finds the, the corpse of Idarov and sees that it's moving and that he's still breathing and that his fingers are twitching. So this guy was literally brought back from the dead, from the morgue, and brought back to life by extra rations. He becomes the player of the most physically, handed away, emotionally demanding part in the whole symphony. That was Tom Service talking about the Leningrad Symphony. You really are scraping the barrel in terms of the kind of stuff they were throwing in their bread. I mean, awful. And and the taste of that stuff was just remarkable. For me, that was the taste of poverty. If you could actually eat that bread, you must have been starving. And that was Alex Langlands on Victorian Baking. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, Available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our fifth podcast of December 2015, and indeed our final episode of the year. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. I hope you've all had an enjoyable Christmas. We begin this episode with an interview with Tom Service, a music writer and presenter on BBC Radio 3. This Saturday, Tom will co-present a documentary on BBC Two with historian Amanda Vickery, about Dmitry Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony. This remarkable piece of music was written by the Soviet composer during the Nazi siege of Leningrad, and incredibly, a performance of the symphony took place in the ravaged city in August 1942. I caught up with Tom a couple of weeks ago 
and began by asking what first drew him to this story. It's an easier question to ask what doesn't draw you to it. Uh, I, I don't mean that it's the, it's the sense of tragedy and, and everything else that draws you to the story, but musically speaking, above all, the concert that's given on the 9th of August 1942 in the, the Grand Hall of the Philharmonia in St. Petersburg of the Leningrad Symphony is just one of the most astonishing performances ever to have happened, I think, in the, in the history of 20th century music, quite honestly, possibly in, in all of musical history. Not just because of the human stories that it reveals about the conductor, Carl Eddie Asperg, and the 80 musicians who were all kind of rescued in one way or another from the, the, the torment of the siege in order to put that performance on, but also because of uh, the very, really almost unique situation and status of the of the piece that Shostakovich wrote, that, that he starts writing it actually, you know, as the bombs are falling, that the first time that anybody hears the music, he plays the first two movements of it to friends, and, the, uh, and he has to take his family down to the air raid shelter after the first movement, you know, brings them back in order to continue on with the, with the performance. The, the idea of uh, achieving this this absolutely gigantic and astonishingly ambitious musical structure that has something very clear, very pertinent, and very moving to say about the circumstances in which it was written, but is also, you know, one of the one of the grandest uh, symphonies of the 20th century. That that as well, you know, the, that combination of that performance, the, uh, absolutely this sort of siege transcending heroism of everyone who's in the hall, not just by the way on stage, but also everyone who's there in the audience as well, and also Shostakovich's achievement. It makes it simply, you know. Just just a, a story that, that required to be told, if you like, and, and I hope, you know, if we, if we can do any fragment of this story justice in what we've done, then I hope it'll be uh, moving and involving for people to see. What kind of a man was Shostakovich? For listeners who may not know much about him, how would you describe him? He was a prodigious uh, musical talent, obviously, that's clear. Uh, as a teenager, he'd already written, he, he wrote the probably the the, the most extraordinary symphony ever written by a teenager, his first, which is still one of the most virtuosically brilliantly dazzling, imaginative, life-enhancing pieces of music of the 20th century. As a person, th- th- there are in a way many different Shostakoviches. What I mean by that is that uh, growing up, he was absolutely, he seemed to be an extremely extrovert character. He loved football. He was very funny. Uh, he would play uh, the piano at um, the silent movie theatres. This was a character who, absolutely someone who really loved life. There, there are early photographs of him smiling through sort of, you know, bottle top thick glasses, which he always wore. Uh, but, you know, this, this is a guy who's smiling, who's having a lot of fun. And a lot of the, that early music is full of a real, uh, almost a, well, I use revolutionary with a small R, if you like, a kind of sense of parody and satire often and fun, uh, as well as tapping into all the things that he, the bigger things that he wanted to do as a composer. All of that changes, however, in terms of his character, because of his relationship with uh, the Soviets and what happens, especially in his relationship with Joseph Stalin, uh, because uh, he becomes very quickly a famous composer, but his music is, is censured at exactly the moment it's becoming most successful. And the, the most famous article that re- reveals that is something that started, we talk about this in the film, and in fact I've seen the article in Pravda, you know, the organ of, uh, of, of Soviet Russia, Truth in Russian, uh, an article that's called Muddle Instead of Music, which was said to be written by Stalin himself, which denounces his extraordinary opera, which had been very successful, called Lady Macbeth of 
the Mitsensk district. And from that moment on, Shostakovich's relationship with the regime changed completely because he felt that he could basically no longer trust anyone in power. Of course, then he experiences what happens in the purges of the 1930s and almost himself, shortly after this denouncement in 1936, the following year, 1937, he's almost carted off to the Gulag himself, or worse. Uh, the only thing that saves him is that the the officer or the you know the KGB guy who asked him to come back had been shot from one day to the next. That's the only reason that Shostakovich survived. So from that point on, he's a man knowing that he's treading the extraordinarily thin ice that the major cultural figures of Soviet Russia had to do. His personality changes at that point. And uh, if you see, there is film of him later in his life in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. You know, this is a man who wears the scars in his personality of how impossible it is to speak the truth in public. You know, very, you can read that very clearly. So he's a, the personality changes deeply. The, the thing that remains constant, though, is the power, creativity and courage of the music. What inspired him to write this symphony about Leningrad at this time? because of the siege. I mean, you know, the, the Germans arrive in June 1941. Stalin thinks that the, the pact will hold and he can't, he's so, he's, I mean, unbelievably naive. He thinks that the, the Nazis are going are gonna to keep to their word. And of course they don't. Um, so almost as soon as the siege starts, Shostakovich begins to, I mean, it's wrong to say that he translates directly the experience of the bombs falling. You don't hear bombs falling in the, in the symphony. What you do hear is an invasion. And in the, the huge first movement, this is a virtually unprecedented thing. It is an unprecedented thing. It lasts about half an hour or 25 minutes. And in the middle of it, there's this little gnarl tune which starts. Uh, there's a side drum. It's very quiet. And it takes over the orchestra and it virtually sort of blows apart the whole first movement of the symphony. Now, he called, or that was called, the invasion theme because it sounds like you know something in the distance, something that you see, you know, that doesn't seem to be doing much, which then eventually destroys something. So it's clearly a, a musical image of invasion. Now that absolutely is about what's happening around him. So it's it's an unbelievably direct response. I mean, it has other meanings too, but it's partly an extremely direct response to what's happening, to the, to this city being starved, strangled and sieged to death. That's what the Nazis wanted to do to Leningrad. Could you give us an idea of exactly what it was like to live through the siege of Leningrad? The most powerful testimony about that in the film, and the thing that struck me the keenest, and I think will strike anyone who sees the film, is the testimony from two 90-year-olds who were at the performance of the symphony in 1942. Now, look, there are two stories of what they went through in the siege, and especially Olga's. Clearly, they're, they're a, a, a tiny fragment of, of what the whole city went through in the more than one million, I can't remember, you need to check out the exact figure of how many people died in, in the siege, but it's, you know, it is hundreds of thousands of of lives that were lost, of course. Um, Olga's story tells, I think, so keenly about the hardship that they went through. There's one astonishing moment where she's working at an orphanage, and in that first winter of 1941-42, which is one of the coldest on record, she goes to the top of the orphanage, it's all unheated, and there's a Christmas tree, and she thinks there are presents under the tree, and there aren't packages, they're dead children, because they've been the corpses have been moved up there to this room and she can't, you know, she can't forget that image. But, I mean, that that's one fragment of how appalling life was. Really, it's the stories that Amanda Vickery tells in the film about how the, the rations were appallingly meagre, you, you had 125 grams of bread a day to live on, but actually this was a, a adulterated flour that was from, you know, sawdust and anything else they could find on the floor and the people were making soup out of boiled shoe leather and we get a real sense in the film of the of the 
privations that the city went through for uh, for well for so many months and years because of course it wasn't formally lifted the siege until January 19 until well, until early 1944 once um Shostakovich had com- completed the symphony how popular was it initially did it really strike a chord with Russia the symphony was premiered in Koibyshev, which was the city to which Shostakovich and, and the, the Soviet government had been evacuated. Shostakovich was evacuated from the siege in October 1941, and he finished the symphony in Koibyshev with his, with his family. It was quickly premiered in Moscow, and at the Moscow performance, somebody said in the audience or commented that Shostakovich was now more powerful than Hitler. What that meant was uh, the Russians absolutely heard in it a, a sense of defiance. And frankly, I mean, in, in a sense, a kind of rather more obvious thing, which is here is this huge 80 minute long symphony which which has been written in you know one of the most appalling periods of history of the second world war so despite everything that the germans were doing this was a culture that was still capable of producing the leningrad symphony you know that in itself is an extraordinary symbol it became extremely popular not just in russia but all over the world very quickly there was a, a flight that was commandeered the symphony was taken out of russia where it flew the plane via tehran it escaped the German, you know, the German anti-aircraft fire, and got to Tehran, Cairo, and then ended up in London. And it was premier. It was Henry Wood played it, and it was broadcast on the BBC. There was great consternation at the BBC whether the symphony would overrun the nine o'clock bongs of, of Big Ben. But it was heard as an incredibly powerful symbol of Allied resistance. I mean, of of the whole of the anti-Nazi world used the symphony or want, and wanted to use the symphony as a symbol of resistance, and and the fact that you know culture would survive, and the fact that this culture could be a symbol of an event victory over the Germans. The piece itself is in a way a narrative of tragedy, invasion, the, the, the unbelievably dark but also sort of brilliant, luminous, it's a strange contradiction, but the, the, the slow movement of, of the symphony is simultaneously a, a lament and yet it's something full of, I don't know, there's, there's a brightness and sharpness in those colours as well. But anyway, the symphony does end with, a, with an image of, of victory. Uh, later in 1942, or rather in July 1942, Arturo Toscanini conducted it with the NBC Symphony Orchestra and it was broadcast to millions in America and that, that same week Shostakovich himself was on the cover of Time dressed in the uh, the firefighter's uniform because he'd been employed as a, as a firefighter on the on the roof of the Leningrad Conservatory where he trained um, so there was this moment where you know Red Russia previously uh, not exactly a friend of the of the Americans now the whole world was joined against the Germans and the, the symphony was audible proof well, of, of hope of defiance and of, of, of possibility and it had it had a hundred more than a hundred performances very very quickly so yeah it was really it was taken on by the whole world not just Russia as a a powerful symbol of a hope for victory as well as its huge political historical importance did people at the time recognize it for the musical quality of it too Uh, yes although that was controversial interestingly I mean there are are many testimonies of of how 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 powerfully it's gone down and how powerfully it's resonated with people but there was also criticism about the what the critic the American critic called Virgil Thompson heard as uh, the crudity of the way it had been put together and he said you know if he goes on writing like this he'll no longer be able to be taken seriously as a serious composer there were a few dissenting voices and in a way that criticism of the symphony in a way continues to today actually there are, there are some people who hear in it a, a sort of poster paint crudity as opposed to a, a work of symphonic sophistication for me it definitely is but it is in, in, a, in a quite a strange way in a way that was brought home to me by Marina Frolova Walker who appears in the film as well Russian musicologist uh, at the University of Cambridge but we, we played the piano together I'm a appalling pianist she's much better than me but anyway we tried to hack through uh, part of the, uh, the, the the symphony 
something like this. I mean, one of the things about this 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 invasion theme that I mean, this very simple thing. On and on and on and on, over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, people said at the time, well, it's just Nick from Ravel's Bolero, or you know, why this endless repetition of this stupid little theme? And as Marina told me, the stupidness, if you like, is precisely the point because what what the whole thing symbolizes the idea that something so mundane, so banal, so simple can become so evil, can become an agent and a harbinger of such uh, destruction and sort of ideological and physical and everything, uh, warfare. Uh, and as she says in the film, I think it makes a very good point that, you know, what, what are Stalin and Hitler but a mediocre poet and a mediocre uh, painter and, you know, look what happened. So what, pe- what some people hear is the, if you like, the, the quote-unquote crudity of the composition for me is actually proof precisely of its sophistication because to, in order to be able to make to make that meaning work you have to be in, I mean incredibly sophisticated as a composer to, to do that job and there's no doubt that the symphony that part of it and the whole piece achieves that objective Maxim Shostakovich the composer's son uh, and in making the film we were lucky enough that he was conducting the orchestra in the same hall where it was played in, in Leningrad St. Petersburg I mean he remembers as a I think he was three or possibly he was four he was three when he heard the premiere in 1942 in Korbyshev with his family and uh, he remembers being simply terrified by this tune, this innocent little collection of notes, which nonetheless assumes this absolutely horrific, overwhelming, violent power. And, you know, he had nightmares about it. So this is a deeply ambitious and, and still relevant, still meaningful symphony, I think. You did allude to it earlier, but there's this moment where there's an incredible moment you talk about in the film where they perform the symphony for the first time in Leningrad, a city still under siege and with, with people still, you know, starving to death. How much of a challenge was it to make that happen? Well, it was it was almost it is actually unbelievable when you hear the stories about how, how it happened. The, I mean, the orchestra had been completely decimated, emaciated. Those aren't the right was destroyed by the, the by that winter. This was an orchestra of 80, 90 people. By the time that the authorities said, look, we've got to get some music back, that was because, by the way, all that the radio had been broadcasting through the winter was uh, was the sound of a ticking metronome as proof that the city was still alive. Of course, that ends up sounding like a, you know, like a beetle in its death throes, like a death rattle rather than proof of life. So they said, look, spring 1942, we've got to get the orchestra back together to give, you know, to give people hope, to make people feel that the, the city's cultural life still goes on. And what uh, Carl... Asperger, who was the only surviving conductor. There were 27 musicians who were still alive and there were 12 who could still actually play. So, I mean, that, that was never going to be enough to play, you know, a Beethoven symphony, let alone this piece. There's a again the experience in this in, in the film where I tell the story in the film but the call goes out to ask musicians to report to the radio house the radio dom and you know a lot of people turn up because anybody who does and anybody who's accepted in the orchestra is going to get extra rations but of course that you know there's no more powerful thing that you can offer a, a starving population of course some of whom would even turn to cannibalism you know that was the desperation that the city was reduced to so obviously the idea of extra rations was, a, was going to get people through the doors some of them who turned up could hardly play anything or even had no musical ability at all perhaps not surprisingly and so Eliasberg realised that he didn't have nearly enough musicians he goes out on his bike through the, the slushy snow and uh he hears about this this drummer called Zhaudat Aydarov. He hears that he's dead. I mean, he goes to check. I mean, it's kind of a strange thing to do, I guess. Why would you check that somebody was dead? Anyway, he goes to the morgue and sees that this this he finds the, the corpse of Aydarov and sees that it's moving and that he's still breathing and that his fingers are twitching. So this guy was literally brought back from the dead, from the morgue, and brought back to life by extra rations. He becomes the player of the most physically 
handed away emotionally demanding part in the whole symphony, which is the side drum that incessantly beats that invasion in the, in the first movement and has a big important part to play throughout the symphony. I mean, you know, a story like that just symbolizes how difficult it was to put it together. And just one more thing on that. One of those things where it now seems sort of inevitable that this performance happened because, of course, the symphony had to come back to Leningrad and, of course, of course it had to be done. Well, not only was that, of course, in doubt for all of the reasons of, you know, starvation and everything else, when when Eliasberg saw the score, and I've seen in in we see in the film the the score that he conducted from the one that was flown over from Kolbyshev and you know it's in four volumes well that in itself tells a story because each movement requires its own book effectively I mean that showed the scale of it so he opened it he opened it and could see there had been 115 musicians playing at the premiere uh, he knew he was never going to get near that number it's a piece that lasts about 80 minutes between 70 and 80 minutes it's got unbelievable sort of fortissimo blaring things for the brass and the wind huge sort of labour for the strings as well let alone what's going on in the percussion section I mean it's just it, it, he just thought it was impossible i mean and and you know in a way it really is and was impossible i mean the fact that that performance happened and then they repeated it it genuinely is it, it, it's sort of again miracle is, is really not too strong a word for that collective will that sheer strength and determination to make that happen to make those performances happen i mean it is it is unbelievable and i hope in the film we communicate that sense of just how <laughs> just extraordinary that this happened at all you know and, and in the film, you talk to some people who actually were there at that performance, and how yeah. how do they recollect it nowadays? Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, in a way that you know, the, the, just this the moment that, where sort of you feel watching her that kind of time collapses. You know, you're with her, uh, Olga, who was I think she was 18 when she saw the performance in 1942, and she t- she tells the cameras tells us. But it is the way she talks. It's really like she's talking to you individually. It's just, it's absolutely amazing about the the effect this had on her, how she, she reads her own tragedy through it. You know, her father and grandfather had died. Um, she has this experience of seeing these dead children under a Christmas tree. I mean, all these sorts of things. But, she, you know, she dresses up. She wants to go to the Grand Hall of Philharmonia to a concert. If that, oh, that's a real thing about thinking, well, the city can come back to life. We can do this. And then the, the piece happens. And the way she talks about the effect that the music had, again, all these things that, uh, as historians, you want to try and say, well, the piece symbolised this, or it tells the story of the siege, and it works up into victory. Look, for her, that's absolutely what it was. You know, she heard her tragedy transcended in the music, and at the end of it, she hears a, a, a proof and a kind of the most gigantic, you know, two fingers, whatever, to the Germans that this is, you know, you are not going to win. You cannot beat us. You cannot beat a city that can make this happen. We have done this, and and you, you've got nothing on it. The fact that we can do that <laughs> means that we're going to win in the end. And not only is that real. For her that was real for i'm sure for everybody in that audience and for everybody who heard the performance too not least by the way the germans and i think there's a there's a particularly um brilliant thing that because the the performance was broadcast to the german lines now the the, the soviet barrage had stopped or they, they'd sort of they'd done their bombing earlier in the day <laughs> to sort of quite try and quiet the german guns or any guns ideally during during the performance and of course you know it's a long piece that that's an important thing to do but then broadcasting to the germans germans for whom the definition of of their, of their culture is music. You know, their, their culture is a musical culture. So when when the German soldiers, and we know this happened from testimony, again, the Germans who were there, they, they felt utterly demoralized at the, the scale, scope, and intensity of what they were hearing. From a German perspective, hearing music as, as proof of life, they understood better than anyone what that meant so you know the, the the symphony did have an absolutely direct propaganda and demoralizing effect on the enemy on the besiegers just as it had this tremendously just the power that olga expresses in the film about what, what it meant to her 
And what do you think more broadly about what, what this says about the power of music and art more generally to to kind of lift people in really difficult times. There's no more powerful symbol of how a communal act of music making or any artistic or cultural experience can not just lift spirits, but can, but can become part of the way that uh, in the most desperate times it's possible to imagine can become a sounding board in which people can come together and hear themselves reflected and transcended. In it. This symphony, these performances in Leningrad, certainly, but actually in a sense all around the world at this time as well, prove that better, I think, than any other single, you know, cultural document of the of the 20th century finally you for the documentary you spent quite a, a lot of time in st petersburg as leningrad is called now mm. I mean, how how do people there um view the symphony you know in the 21st century the leningrad symphony today is an, an essential document of, of history of course and making the film watching the film as well you, you know you, you understand this is a piece that belongs to Olga and Tamara who were there in 1942 it belongs to Dmitry Shostakovich's son Maxim who's conducting the orchestra in our film and it belongs to that city when you hear that the the, the, the players in the orchestra who by the way are the sort of direct musical uh, descendants of the, of the Radio Com orchestra that played it on the 9th of August 1942 you know, they feel it as their music and they understand uh, and it truly is and the way that the, the performance is commemorated outside the whole it's something that the Russians or anyone who goes to that hole is, is made aware of every time. This piece, this performance, this city, absolutely symbolically connected still today, absolutely. But I think in making it, the, the power of the, of the story and the power of the music, of course, is that it goes beyond all those things as well. I, th I think it speaks for today. It's a piece that has a cathartic power for any situation where you need to confront the honesty of the darkness and the desperation of whatever has been happening in, in your life or a culture's life or a nation's life or, or whatever. But to hear the hope, not for a kind of victory which wipes out what's gone beyond before which acknowledges the pain of what you've been through and also offers the possibility of a new life at the end of it i mean in a way the reason that the symphony still matters today in leningrad and across the world is of course it's about the, the these circumstances which gave rise to it but it is also because of this astonishing thing that music can do that it can realize all that experience all the time so that meaning that that drama that essential power trajectory of of, of the music remains as you know as relevantly resonant to you know frankly to all of us today as it as it did then through the telling of those stories of Olga and Tamara for me it makes in a strange way it makes that potentially universal or global power of the music brings it home to me even more powerfully that was Tom Service Leningrad and the orchestra that defied Hitler presented by Tom and Amanda Vickery is due to air this Saturday the 2nd of January at 9 10 p.m on BBC2 and it should be available on BBC iPlayer after that. And I should also mention that you can read an article from Tom about the Leningrad Symphony in the January issue of our sister title, BBC Music Magazine. You can find out more at classical-music.com. In the meantime, our Christmas edition is still on sale for just a couple more days. In this month's issue, we have articles on Victorian poverty, Elizabeth I's rivalry with Mary, Queen of Scots, the medieval history behind Game of Thrones, and the Battle of the Atlantic, among other things. You can get hold of our Christmas edition in all good news agents and our many digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Our second interview this week is with Alex Langlands, a historian and broadcaster. He is co-presenter of a new BBC Two series entitled Victorian Bakers, which sees a group of modern bakers experience the conditions of their 19th century predecessors. At the same time, the series will explore what bread production tells us about Victorian social and economic changes. I spoke to Alex recently to find out more. How different was the Victorian baking world from what we experience today, what we know today? It kind of depends on what period. I mean, the great thing about this show is that um, we we tested our bakers in three different uh, periods of Victoria's reign because, you know, as, as we know, it's a very long reign, um, almost as long as our own Queen's reign. Um, uh, and we start our bakers off in the sort of 1830s. They then move into the mid-Victorian nadir, as I like to call it, the sort of low point, if you like, uh, before coming out the other end of that into a kind of more Edwardian... And 20th century looking form of baking so you know it, that that last program in the series i think they were very much more in their comfort zones in terms of being familiar with that world of baking but what was i think most fun for me as a historian who often deals with very early periods of history was to see them battling with that very early period because really baking in the 1830s was remarkably different to to how it's become today is that largely a matter of technology Largely technology, yes, yes. I mean, uh, largely technology, but also audiences, markets, who you're actually baking for. I mean, you know, those those early bakeries, we were set in this wonderful location, Sacrewell, um, up in uh, Cambridgeshire. Um, and there they have an authentic uh, late, well, I say late 18th, early 19th century bakehouse. Very, very basic, incredibly basic, really. So there's a, l- a lack of technology there. But the other thing is, is that you're baking for really your local community. So the options for thinking commercially are very limited, actually. it's In some ways, it's almost more of a public service than it is a kind of uh, business that you can take and develop and grow. So you had to think quite differently. So that was a challenge for some of our bakers, but definitely the technology. I mean, I think a lot of them found it very hard going back to such raw ingredients because we also did our level best to attempt to source period varieties of wheat and period varieties of yeast as well. Yeah, that was something something else I was interested to know, actually, is how different was the composition of the bread people were buying in the Victorian time to what people nowadays might buy from the supermarket? 
Well, that that was the huge challenge for me. I mean, it, it, this is what really made the series for me was that a lot of living history, a lot of reenactment, a lot of uh, sometimes we call it experimental archaeology as well. A lot of that sometimes can be a little bit skin deep. What was great about this program is that these bakers were charged with producing an authentic taste, not just an authentic look, but an authentic taste. And 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 that was really what what all of us involved, myself and Annie and the bakers were really keen to do, was to see if we could actually create something that tasted of Victorian Britain. And I think certainly in the first programme, when they were in all of them, but I was really struck in the first programme by the taste of that really authentic 1830s bread, using a wheat that was grown at the time, milled to a certain standard, using a yeast which is much more volatile, a sort of historic period, brewer's yeast. And you know, I won't give it away, but 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 for me, I, the taste was super authentic, and I thought produced something actually very edible. I mean, we hear a lot nowadays about all the different additives and things that go into mass-produced bread. So, I mean, was the bread that people were eating in this period, would it be more nutritious than what we eat now? Well, again, you know, we baked through three different periods in uh, Victoria's reign. And what we see is, is a sort of roller coaster ride, really, through different ingredients. You know, you start off with, with that very authentic taste. By the time you get into the kind of dark days of Victorian industrialism, you know, you really are scraping the barrel in terms of the kind of stuff they were throwing in their bread. I mean, awful. And, and the taste of that stuff was just remarkable. I mean, to, for me, that was the taste of poverty. If you could actually eat that bread, you must have been starving. And then we come out the other end of it where, you know, there was kind of some residual, what we call adulteration, but then you also get more sort of fancy breads, more experimental breads. So, you know, I think viewers are going to, they're going to love this series because it takes you through that journey. It takes our bakers through that journey as well. And it, and it took certainly took my palate, my taste buds through that journey. And you've mentioned a couple of times now this real low point in the mid-19th century. We tend to think of the 19th century as being a period of great progress, but did you actually see that baking and, and food standards were going backwards for a time? Yes, I think, I think it's safe to say, actually. What we see happening in, in the Victorian period, as you rightfully say, is industrialism. We see what we call progress in inverted commas, technological change, the empire growing. Britain really is at the top of the pile. But as we all know, all historians know, that that didn't, very, that didn't often uh, spell good news for people lower down the social order. And in fact, things had to get worse before they got better. Um, but what's interesting about baking is that it stayed in the doldrums, actually, for much longer. Than, than many other industries. If I was to think of, well, you know, any, any other industry, but when we think about hygiene standards, for example, um, and working standards across the board, there had already been commissions on working standards that were trying to improve factory workers' conditions, uh, working hours and wages. It took a lot longer to see those implemented in bakehouses, which was interesting for, for myself as a historian, but also for our bakers as well. You know, baking sort of stayed in the doldrums a bit. What impact did the Industrial Revolution have? Because that must have meant you've suddenly got huge urban populations that need a very different kind of baker, possibly, than a small rural community. Yes, but again, it's an interesting one that, you know, and it, this is where the story gets interesting because you can sometimes think of baking in, in the same way that we think of everything else. Technology brings change and it brings benefit. 
Uh, and that's not often the case. What we see is city centres exploding in terms of their population. But with that growth in population, we all see, also see a growth of bakers. You know, undercutting was rife. Um, and when you don't have any measures uh, taken, regulation taken in terms of hygiene, in terms of working hours, in terms of quality, anyone could set up as a baker. So you see a sort of flooding of the marketplace. So whereas you would expect technology to drive up standards and to meet with the demands of the group, this growing population, it doesn't because when everyone's setting up a bakery on a street corner – there's a lack of capital investment. Lack of capital investment means you don't buy in the, the, the technology, the mixing machines, and all of the various different scientific approaches that were being adopted then. What you actually find is baking stays in that kind of an 1830s, 1840s world. Very, very basic, hands-on baking. What were kind of the economics like of baking? Do we know how much bread of cost in those days? Would it have been a much higher proportion of someone's income than it is, say, nowadays? Uh, much higher proportion. And it's difficult across the whole period. It's it's very difficult to give you uh, very exact statistics. But food in general, all types of food, was taking up very much more people's weekly uh, and monthly earnings. The cost of living was relatively high compared to how it is today. Um, and, and, you know, that was very much the case with, with baking and daily bread. There were very, very fine margins for bakers. Their chief expense would have been flour and behind that labor so you know if you could get in an unskilled laborer cheaper than a seasoned baker you would try and do so if you could put all sorts of nasties in your bread instead of flour um you would do so um just to try and eke out profits because you got to remember bakers themselves had uh, you know they had costs they had rents to pay and they had um, bellies to feed as well in their own houses so it was, you know certainly in the mid-victorian period it was it was a gritty industry it really was quite cutthroat. We come out of that through the 1880s to the sort of turn of the century, and we actually see some improvements. Baking is sort of more recognisably 20th century, and bakers do have opportunities to specialise. They have opportunities to create finer pastries, to bring in confectionery. You know, they've got two ways. They can either go mass market, which is, of course, what we see in baking, or they can go niche speciality um, and we decided to go down the niche speciality it worked very well dunn's bakery in crouch end wonderful bakery there that's been there for over 100 years um, we managed to commandeer a section of their bakery to attempt some of those kind of turn of the century late victorian edwardian types of confectionery pastry cakes and bread this more discerning bakers, does that really reflect the kind of changes going on in wider society of how people may have had more disposable income, may have been a growing middle class to buy, actually buy these products? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so they've got more disposable income, but we've also got to remember in the late Victorian period, there's a lot more food available to people. Um, you know, the, the same steam shipping that's bringing in cheaper grain from the United States and Canada is also bringing in cattle uh, beef from Argentina, bringing in lamb from places like New Zealand. You've got Danish bacon. You've got cheeses from the low countries. You've got developments in, in potato growing technology means, means that they you, know, you don't have the same problems with blight. So there's many, many potatoes on the British diet. Um, fish as well, steam trawling, a lot more fish. So in some ways, bread 
actually slipped down the pecking order in, uh, in terms of being the, the staff of life. And, and that was another reason why uh, bakers had to do something extra with their bread. They had to kind of, you know, turn it into something enjoyable because it, it had kind of become stigmatized. You know, bread was the food of the masses. If you were uh, on the way up, uh, sort of middling sort, and you wanted to, to look impressive, you didn't want to be seen eating bread because that was the food for poor people. Talking about the history of baking more generally, I mean, how much has something like the Great British Bake Off done to make people more interested in how people used to bake in centuries past? Do you know what I think this baking craze? I think a lot of it is about our need to do stuff with our hands. We are makers, we are creators, you know, and we as a generation, we are spending far too much time sat in front of pixelated screens, pixelated versions of reality. And we don't do anything. We don't make anything. So we love gardening allotments. um, But there's one thing we can do, which is incredibly creative. It involves working with raw materials to create something that can be enjoyed by all. And that's cooking and, you know, and baking obviously is a big part of that. And I and I think that's what that that baking is tapping into. And, and then once you get this culture of baking, very naturally, you're going to get people who want to really get, you know, a bit like me, they want to get to the bottom of something. How exactly did something used to be cooked? Why do we call it this? Why was it made like this? You know, those are the sorts of questions you start asking and you want you want to dive deeper and deeper into the history of creating something. And in some ways, it's the kind of history I love. I call it hands-on history. And our bakers were, were absolutely superb at this. I mean, just hats off to them. Absolute pleasure to work with them. We've got bakers here from different backgrounds that brought a different level of expertise in, uh, or different types of expertise, I should say. You know, we've got super commercial bakers right down to artisan bakers and everything in between there. They gelled as a team superbly. Um, they all brought something to the party. And I've I've watched some, some of the, the, the footage and they are very... Very warm, engaging, and intelligent, very well-informed bunch. And the programme, I think, will be a success uh, because of what they brought to it. That was Alex Langlands. Victorian Bakers is due to begin on Tuesday the 5th of January on BBC Two. Please check a listing service for the exact time. And it will also be available on the BBC iPlayer. Now, for the past year and a half... We've been running a series in the magazine and on the podcast called Our First World War that charts the events of that conflict 100 years on through the voices of those who lived and fought through it. Well, we've now arrived at December 1915 and here, speaking to the Imperial War Museum, is Private Harold Hayward recalling an unpleasant experience that took place during a wiring expedition in No Man's Land. I remember uh, the first time we went over wiring, uh, that, uh, uh, of course, everything was going out over the top tonight and uh, go quietly, not, not a word to one another. And we hadn't got, this was rough, uh, outside barbed wire here, no barbed wire there, and we were going to make the thing uh, a proper uh, continuous line. Well, uh, I... I was just along, I just happened to step to one side, and I went up there into a French latrine. I thought, okay, well, Nick. I thought to myself, well, people, I, I said, help, help, and they said, shh, shh. I thought, oh, I, I, I'm not going to die like this, that, that when my parents asked me what caused his death, that he fell into a latrine and, <laughs> and, and was drowned, 
I, I, and so they put their rifles down and, and I caught hold of two of them and they pulled me out. But no one would come near, near me for the rest of the time in the line. That was Harold Hayward. Our First World War continues each month in BBC History magazine. And that is pretty much it for this week and indeed this year. But please do listen in next time when we'll be broadcasting a lecture from our 2015 History Weekend event. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.